and welcome to Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, Director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on Thursday, January 26, 2023. We have a couple interesting cases coming up with uh, for you with a couple great guests, including a first timer. So I'm very inter- interested and excited to introduce him. But first, uh, a special announcement to our short circuit listeners out there. We have an event in the DC area coming up on March 31st. It's Friday, March 31st. So if you live in the DC area, you can come and join us and say hi to our short uh, circuit short circuit staff, uh, pronounce our name correctly, um, and learn all about the case Meyer versus Nebraska, which was handed down in 1923. So it is the 100th anniversary of this monumental uh, case for civil rights and constitutional liberties. Um, some of you may know Meyer versus Nebraska was a challenge to um, language laws that were enacted right after World War I that banned the teaching of foreign language in elementary schools. And uh, they went all the way to the Supreme Court. The lead case was from the little town of Hampton, Nebraska, where Robert Meyer was fined for speaking German to his elementary school students. Um, so we have a full day. It is uh, all about this case and its ramifications, because so much led from Meyer in the 20th century, whether you're talking about um, the First Amendment, incorporation, parental rights, you name it, uh, unenumerated rights generally, you name it, it, it's there largely because of Meyer versus Nebraska. So um, we have a slew of scholars who will be talking about these cases. There'll be a lot of people from IJ there. So if you'd uh, like to learn or just mingle a little bit and you're in the DC area, please come. And for most of the listeners who are not in the DC area, we are going to be streaming it online and recording it. So um, details of that will be forthcoming. But if you would like to RSVP, we're going to put a link in the show notes to it. We would love to see you. Um, We're excited exceedingly excited um, that our keynote speaker is going to be Professor William Ross of Samford University. And he literally, and I do mean literally, wrote the book on Meyer. Um, his book from uh, that he published in the 90s, Forging New Freedoms, Nativism, Education, and the Constitution. Uh, he went deep into the archives in um, uh, a few different places in the Midwest that uh, where these laws were passed. And Um, where they were prosecuted and learned a lot about the case that he put into this book. And he'll be, he'll be summarizing that at the keynote. And then we have all kinds of scholars who will be speaking. I don't want to name them all right now. And I don't want to only name a few because then I'd be leaving some out. So just go look at them on our webpage and we would love to see you on March 31st. And it's, it's at a, a location that's only a block from the Supreme Court the place where, you know, it all happens. So uh, if you work at the court, you know, you could you could take a, a couple hours, come down and see us. If you work near the court, you definitely could do the same thing. And we would love to see you. Um, but a couple people that I am seeing today and that you are listening to are a couple of my IJ colleagues. They are first timer on short circuit, Saranjan Send. Saranjan, welcome to short circuit. 
Thank you very much, Anthony. It's my pleasure to be here, my honor to be here. I've been keeping up with Short Circuit for a while, and uh, I'm real glad to be joining you today. Okay. And um, Saranjan, we'll get to it a little bit. But first, uh, a man I have known for all too long. It was uh, a co-clerk of mine back uh, in the summer, a glorious summer of 2003, uh, speaking of anniversaries, our 20th anniversary, um, is... Uh, sorry to depress you, Rob, is Rob Fromer. So, Rob, welcome back to Short Circuit. Uh, for those of you, by the way, who are interested in clerking at IJ, I think it's just about our deadline. Uh, still a, a chance if you want to try to clerk here um, for the summer. You can uh, you can apply, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but Rob, uh, he's going to take his clerkship training and a few other things and then apply it to telling us about, um, I believe, how the police find bags of Dope. Bag so, of dope. Yeah, bag so that's dope. that's what we're most interested in today. I know you're interested in bags of dope, and I'll try to uh, satisfy you here. Uh, so this case that we're going to talk about today is uh, called United States versus uh, Aaron Loins. And it's really a case about the cops trying to take shortcuts with the Fourth Amendment. But it's also about the importance of courts that take their jobs seriously. So all this begins in charming Euclid, Ohio, and it turns out that the Cleveland police are investigating some potential drug trafficking. I think it's like heroin and fentanyl, you know, not nice stuff. Um, And so they're casing this house. They're watching this house. And as they watch this house, they see uh, this red Altima, this red, red Nissan Altima. It leaves. It leaves the house. It goes and uh, sells drugs to a police informant, and it comes back. So it's pretty clear that this uh, vehicle is tied in with uh, the drug dealing. Now, this is going on for a while, and eventually the police decide to get a search warrant, and they do get a search warrant. They get a search warrant for the house, not the car. And that's important, as you'll see. So now the police have this warrant for the house, and they're executing the warrant. And, you know, they're looking around trying to find evidence of drug dealing and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, one of the officers, oh, sees out out on the street the red Altima. Okay. Well, the investigating officer goes up to the car, peers in, well, tries to peer in. It turns out that the Altima had pretty um, significant uh, window tinting that made it difficult to see in. And so, but he peers in and he says uh, from his vantage point, Uh, Oh, I saw a small plastic bag that I immediately knew was a bag of dope near the center console. You're going to be hearing that phrase a lot, bag of dope. So the officer goes inside and asks, well, whose car is this? And our defendant, you know, Aaron Loins, wisely or unwisely, says, oh, it's mine. And they confirm it by using his keys to turn on the alarm. So based on seeing this, quote, bag of dope in what they call plain view, like they can just, they immediately saw it, looked in and knew it was a bag of dope and knew that was uh, illegal drugs. The police decide to tow the vehicle for an inventory search. Again, the warrant was for the house, not the car. They decide to uh, to tow the vehicle and search it without a warrant at all under what's known as an inventory search. And when they toss the car, guess what? Surprise, surprise. They find drugs and a gun. Now, Loin gets arrested for both. And when he was at the district court, he moved to suppress the evidence, saying, 
the police, they couldn't see anything. They couldn't seize my car and search it based on this. Uh, and so that was unconstitutional. You should suppress the evidence. District court rejects the motion, says, oh, yeah, no, they could totally see this in plain view. And it was fine for them to seize the car based on that and uh, search it. And so as a result, Loins conditionally pleads guilty to 93 months in prison. Almost eight years. Ooh. But things turn out quite different on appeal for uh, Aaron. There, the Sixth Circuit starts to really closely examine the evidence, supporting the idea that the officer could see the bag of dope in plain view. And now the police put some things forward to, as evidence to suggest this. Uh, the big one they did is a picture from inside the car during the inventory search where they said, see, you can see the dope, to which the court <laughs> rightly pointed out, wait a second. That's a picture from inside the car. That doesn't tell us anything about what the cop saw outside the car when he was just looking in. And so they said, okay, no, 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 no. All right. We also have uh, footage from their body cameras that shows uh, what they could shows what they were doing on the outside of the car. And the court looks at that as well. And it says, well, all that shows is what they were doing. It doesn't show the bag of dope, nor does it say that this bag of dope is it was a, that this was immediately apparent to be a, an illegal bag of dope. So the Sixth Circuit was having none of it. It said, because the plain view and inventory exceptions to the warrant are exceptions, the government has to prove that they're, uh, they apply, and that the evidence that you brought to us here is just not up to the task. It just doesn't show that, uh, that you saw this bag of dope in plain view. And because of that, the, search, the, the seizure of the car was bad. The search of the car was bad. All the evidence they found inside the car was bad. And as a result, the Sixth Circuit uh, ended up reversing and saying the search was unreasonable and all the evidence against Loins got tossed out. Saranchin, do you know what a bag of dope looks like? Uh, I, I would probably have some guesses, um, but I, I, I have seen episodes of the wire, uh, but it would, it, I've, I'm, I'm not sure that I would be willing to look through a tinted window at a car and, and be able to immediately know like, oh yes, that's a bag of dope for, for probable cause purposes. I'm, I'm going to be willing to say no. Rob, what wasn't there? There was like a, a plane card too, or, oh, or a yeah. couple of yeah, very... They small little indicia of that often go with um, drug dealing, but that that didn't seem to be enough for the, the court either. Oh, yeah. They said they saw the bag of dope in the center console. And I think they said, oh, well, there was like a lottery ticket there oh, that's uh, right. next to it. And I think the court at that point says like, well, what does, what does that have to do with anything? Like, what does the fact that there's a lottery ticket have to do with anything? And they said, look, this was supposed to be in the center console. It was fairly well obscured. The windows were tinted. And you've brought nothing to the table to show us that, you know, despite all that, you somehow could magically see this stuff. What I find really interesting about this case is that probably 95% of the time, the same kind of thing happens and the police, that there will be no problem with what the police did, because of you know various things such as there's a they they had a little bit more probable cause or more usually with a, a vehicle search right the vehicle 
it's because the vehicle w- was pulled over and there was something there was you know uh uh the the driver's there so they can get in the car um because it's part of a traffic stop and therefore they find probable cause and that leads to um the arrest and that leads to the towing of the car and the inventory search which is this kind of like get out of the fourth amendment free card thing that the police often can do because you can't just leave a car by the side of the highway but the problem is that the driver isn't in the car the car is lawfully parked there's nothing wrong with the car being there and yet maybe because they were frustrated that they couldn't find anything wrong in the house uh, i mean other than just you know finding the suspect they they just kind of fall back onto what they know which is towing the car and doing an inventory search well i i think that's exactly right and i think what's going on here is that i mean to be perfectly honest there's no better easier way to say this like the police screwed up the police knew that that red ultima was involved in their suspected drug dealing they could have easily gotten a warrant to search that ultima i mean Hell, they they took the car to go sell drugs. Yeah, they could have got a warrant in probably an hour or two, and then just come on back and and they had the keys. <laughs> they had the keys. They could they could have simply secured the car and gone uh, gone a warrant, and they could have relied not on this magical bag of dope, but just on the fact that they knew this car was involved in the drug dealing that right. they were investigating because they had again they bought drugs from somebody who drove the car like that pretty clearly ties it to the drug dealing. So this is the this really was the government sort of messing up, for lack of a better word, and trying to use a shortcut to get into the car anyway. And th- you see the district court went along with it, said it was perfectly fine. And, and that's the importance of having engaged judges that actually will closely evaluate the evidence because if, you, if, if you're just going to use a, you know, uh, if you're just going to credulously go along with whatever the police believe, no matter what, then your Fourth Amendment rights really don't mean much of anything. So it's important to have judges who are really willing to put the government to its burden and say, does the evidence actually uh, support what the government did here? Now, Rob, uh, I should add, is the uh, leader of our fourth project on the Fourth Amendment. And so he has various... Uh, um, cases going in um, Fourth Amendment search and seizure uh, land. And so uh, his expertise, we appreciate, has been lent to uh, this particular Fourth Amendment situation. But before we move on, Rob, what are a couple Fourth Amendment cases that our um, our listeners should keep in mind and maybe keep keep their eyes on that, that IJ is up to? Well, I'd say we have an incredible amount going on, especially uh, in our one of the major areas is our open fields legis- uh, litigation. That's where the police can march onto your private property without a warrant, without any probable cause. And, you know, the federal government has said, or the U.S. Supreme Court said that's okay, but a lot of states are pushing back. And so we have cases in Pennsylvania and Tennessee. We have cases challenging the seizure of over $100 million in cash and jewelry from a vault in California. We're unfortunately our plate is very full because the government is consistently uh, infringing on our search and seizure rights. And it is so, a we'll target keep... rich environment. Indeed. Well, uh, another target uh, often are peaceful protesters, although sometimes they engage in unlawful assembly. 
whatever that means. So Saranjan is here to help explain what it means and what was going on in the city of Florissant, I think, uh, uh, how you say that, uh, Missouri. Uh, sure. Thanks, Anthony. I, I think it's fluorescent, but uh, my apologies to the, the denizens of that area for if, I, if it's fluorescent, fluorescent, coruscant, I don't know. Um, that was a Star Wars joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's a so, lot of unlawful uh, <laughs> assembly, assemblies in uh, coruscant, but that's a different yeah, um, So uh, I think um, you know we can all recall still, it's still fresh on, on our, the minds of the whole country and the world, uh, summer of 2020, the death of George Floyd um, during an arrest by the uh, Minneapolis police and how that sparked a, a series of protests around the country and eventually around the world against police brutality associated in one shape or another with the groups of Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Um, well, shortly after that, there was a um, police officer in Florissant, Missouri, who hit a suspect with his car. Um, and he said that he tried to avoid hitting the suspect, et cetera. But then when video came out, it suggested that actually maybe he didn't actually try to avoid hitting the suspect. Maybe he actually tried to hit the suspect. And that sparked a lot of more protests in, in Florissant, Missouri itself, uh, right in and around the, the police station. Um, and so this case um, involves in a couple of weeks during that June and July when uh, – Allegedly, the Florissant police had declared unlawful assembly um, and ordered the crowd that was around the police station to disperse, either to move to the other side of the street or, or move out of the street or, or – or, um, and, and that they were arrested people, including one of the plaintiffs for, uh, for unlawful assembly. And what the plaintiffs in this case were alleging is that the – Florissant police were doing that despite the elements of unlawful assembly not being met um, in, in Missouri. And so in Missouri, uh, unlawful assembly has a, uh, two main elements here that one, it has to involve a certain requisite number of people. But more importantly for this case, it has to involve uh, violence or, or plans for imminent violence. And so these, these plaintiffs were alleging that their city of Florissant has a policy and practice of um, of declaring assemblies unlawful and ordering them to disperse for um, un, under threat of arrest, even if they are being peaceful, even if they're not being violent and they're not planning violence, um, and that this policy and practice uh, chills their first the protesters' First Amendment rights. So they're afraid to come back and protest for under under suspicion that they will. Um, be arrested for unlawful assembly, notwithstanding that they're being peaceful. Um, and also that it violates the due process notice requirements um, to, to subject people to the threat of arrest when, when the elements of the, of the offense are not being met. Um, so the district court dismissed their, uh, their complaint for failure to state a claim under 12b6 that in saying that uh, the city's ability to declare assemblies unlawful or to order people to disperse uh, isn't tethered to the Missouri statute that that outlines what the offense of unlawful assembly is, that the city has you know, other legitimate police power reasons for ordering crowds to disperse or for declaring that people are, are gathered unlawfully, uh, namely traffic management 
and that the obvious alternative explanation here is that the city is 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 managing its traffic that these pe- people were standing in the sidewalk standing in the street and there are a few there are a few allegations in the complaint that that the district court pointed to of saying that well the police ordered the protesters out of the street and, and across the street or or that the protesters were were writing black lives matter on the sidewalk and and so the district court took that as alleging that they were in fact uh, obstructing traffic um, and so that that district court opinion was affirmed on appeal um, by a divided panel, which um, with the dissent suggesting it was uh, Judge Judge Kelly uh, from the this is all of course the Eighth Circuit uh, saying that that the lower court had impermissibly made inferences in favor of the city um, here that you know it might as well it might be that the protesters here were. Blocking traffic, were impinging the access to the sidewalk or or whatever, but to to find that that is the the obvious alternative explanation here at the motion to dismiss level is is an improper interference against against the plaintiffs. Um, so I, I don't mean to break your guy's heart, but I, I think that a dismissal was the right decision here. I'm not, I'm not sure if for quite exactly the reasons that the court says. Um, so. The way I approach complaint writing is that if I can prove my factual allegations, I should win. I know it's not exactly what what Twombly, uh, 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 what Twickball says, but but you know, that's that's the way I approach it. Right, and Twick Twickball. Sorry to jump in. Twickball being Twombly and and Iqbal, these uh, kind of the, the Supreme Court's uh, statements on how you write complaints um, of that 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 have controlled kind of com- the complaint writing law for the last few years. Right. And so basically, the way I like to look at it is, is that if you can read this complaint and step back and say, okay, so then there's a problem. And the problem here is that um, the basis for the for the allegation, the basis for this, this wrongful practice was that the city has a practice, allegedly, of declaring assemblies unlawful and ordering people to disperse under threat of arrest, absent the elements of Missouri's unlawful assembly criminal statute, right? But the problem here, as I see it, is that even if you prove that the city is doing that, that wouldn't get you a victory because the city can say and basically did say, that's right. We have a policy and practice of declaring assemblies unlawful uh, in the absence of force or violence. That policy and practice is spelled out in ordinance. It's this ordinance saying that we ha- can can manage traffic. And here I think part of – now – Maybe this is a little bit of a closer call, but I think the court is viewing it as a bit of an equivocation between declaring an unlawful assembly and declaring that people are assembled unlawfully, uh, <laughs> where where uh, it it's so, – so look at it this way. Um, the plaintiffs asked the court for injunction ordering the city not to declare assemblies unlawful or order that people disperse in the absence of force or violence, okay? Let's say that the court did that and issued that injunction – that injunction would prevent the city from enforcing its ordinance prohibiting people from blocking traffic on the roads or in the sidewalks. And at oral argument, the, the ACLU's attorney, uh, or this is the ACLU case, uh, they, the plaintiff's attorney uh, eventually more or less conceded that their theory depended on the notion that you cannot order a crowd of protesters to disperse or move based on the notion that, that some of them are impeding traffic. And just the last thing I'll say here before um, – is that I, I think what really hurt the plaintiffs in this case is that their original complaint included a facial claim challenging the city's traffic impediment ordinance. 
And the initial complaint asserted that that ordinance burdened speech without being sufficiently tailored to keeping sidewalks and streets open, in part because it would apply not only when someone is hindering traffic, but when someone is committing an act that tends to hinder traffic. And they then amended their complaint to get rid of all of these claims pointing to a city ordinance and rested instead their entire lawsuit the notion that the city's ordering protesters to move despite Missouri criminal statutes not being triggered. And I think it had to have been on the district court's mind that, well, yeah, the city has a policy of doing that. That policy is written out in its ordinance, the ordinance that you guys are no longer challenging. Um, and so I, as I said, I, that's not to say that there wasn't uh, – some sort of claim here. I just I feel like the complaint here was alleged in a way that did allow the court to say, you know, e even if you prove everything that you're saying, that doesn't warrant the relief you're seeking. Rob, uh, how are you with unlawful assemblies? You know, like is, um, is this one you'd you'd engage in or sue about? I well, um, <clears throat> I probably wouldn't do it this way. I, I do think that there's probably a claim here somewhere, but it sounds like they just pleaded it as poorly as they probably could have. I mean, it sounds like what they're really saying here is that what the government was doing, despite all these policies uh, in place, what they're really doing is declaring an unlawful assembly because they didn't like the subject matter of what they were, of what they were protesting about. Now, I understand that requires some uh, get to be able to get into the mind of the. Uh, people who declared the unlawful assembly, but that seems to be much more akin to what is actually going on here. And if they had now, do you think, uh, Saranchin, since you've looked at this, do you think like, could they have written a, 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 a narrower complaint that just targeted like what I'm saying, that this was really just a pretext. This was really meant to control, to suppress our content, our message. And if so, like, why do you think they didn't do that? From my reading of the complaint, I don't read there to be a single allegation saying that they're selectively enforcing it based on the content of the speech. I, I think that, I mean, you might be able to really stretch it, read between the lines and think to yourself, oh, maybe that, that this is what's going on. But that that's not at all what they're saying is deficient about the city's policy or practice here. What they're saying is the city is a policy or practice of declaring assemblies unlawful and ordering people to disperse, even though the assembly is not being violent. Okay, so... so but there's lots of there's lots of as you pointed out lots of perfectly valid police power reasons to declare an assembly unlawful even if it weren't necessarily going violent. Although on the other side of this, right? So this is what the plaintiffs' attorneys would probably say is maybe we could have written a better complaint, and we can talk a little bit more about you know what maybe what's wrong with the the, the complaint. But that uh, you should read it in the the in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, right? That's that's what uh, motion to dismiss is all about. And in alleging that, they're alleging the whole universe of, you know, why this might be enforced, this policy might be enforced when there isn't violence. And of course, there's a huge part of that policy that could be to suppress legitimate First Amendment activity, not because there's danger in, in traffic and, and sidewalk obstruction. And so reading that, I think that's where Judge Kelly seems to be coming from, is reading it in the, in, in the light most favorable to the plaintiffs. I mean, you know, come on. It looks like there could be a constitutional violation there. It could be that 
these people were always in the street blocking traffic. It was it was terrible. So every time they enforced it, it was okay. And so their policy overall is constitutional, even if it, you know you want to have a, a facial, uh, if I can use that term, uh, look at this unwritten policy. But that's what's really going on here. And so it's a little bit in in my mind, it's a little bit more of a hard edge use of the motion to dismiss standard, the 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 Twombly Iqbal standard. Uh, that you mentioned Saranjan, then, you know, then typically you find, and maybe this is just because I'm jaded from many years where I had to argue such things about much more detailed complaints, <laughs> but um, I can see where the plaintiffs are, are coming from there. I, 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 I certainly agree with that. I see where the plaintiffs are coming from. And so I don't want it at all to be read as suggesting that the city of Florissant is, is decidedly not violating anyone's constitutional rights. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, but I, I, I mean, this is, I guess, always the name of the game, right, is, is to where's the line where you're making all reasonable inferences in favor of, of the plaintiff versus you're reading the, a complaint that wasn't actually alleged um, and, and so I, 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 the way I read it, the, a lot of the red flags that stuck out to me throughout this complaint is that they never once alleged that, that they aren't breaking the law. They just alleged that they're not being violent. And they keep saying that these are peaceful protests. These are nonviolent protests. They're non we are protesting nonviolently. And, and so at, I think that the way the dissent reads it, and, and I think that the whole like obvious factual, it's not that they're alleging facts that if you prove this, you'll win. But I, but we, the court, thinks that there's obvious alternative factual situations here that probably are correct, and so we're going to go ahead and dismiss it. I, I think it's that they, they're alleging facts where even if you prove it, it says, yes, the city has a policy of doing this. It's in our ordinance, the one that you're not challenging anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so I mean, and, and as I said, I listened to the oral argument for this, and the the AC the lawyer that was representing the ACLU's position here was uh, pretty much had to acknowledge that their case rose and fall on is is it is it legitimate for the government to uh, disperse a crowd for for reasons other than that they're being violent, and and it's just I mean that that's pretty well settled that they they can. You, they can tell you to move for reasons when you're not. I mean, right. I live in the D.C. area. If if the if 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 you were able to just block traffic and stuff and just say I'm not being violent and so therefore you can't move me, I, this city would grind to a halt, which maybe would make would please some people. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it basically ground to a halt because of the metro anyway? But anyway, it's a that's a different story. The, <laughs> the what one thing to step back. A, a little bit and to, to have a little bit also of um, speculation. I think a lot of what's going on here and probably is why that the, the complaint was amended is because of the Manel standard um, that we uh, have talked about in short circuit uh, at times in the past. And we definitely talked about in uh, the second um, season of Bound by Oath, uh, which you guys can can go check out. And we'll put a we'll put a link in the show notes, too. So that's the standard where you sue a city, not an individual officer for violations of the Constitution. And it's weird how Manel works that we don't need to get into right now. But um how they're how they're alleging you know it's peace it peaceful protesting without getting too into the traffic stuff i think probably that's how they had to 
felt they had to allege a Monell standard. Whereas if they were suing individual officers and maybe they just didn't know how they, they didn't think they could get an injunction if they sued individual officers and they weren't going to sue for much damages. So that's maybe why they crafted the complaint this way. Um, if they sued individual officers, then they could have said, yeah, this one time you you shut down this assembly. Everyone was peaceful on the sidewalk. There was no obstruction and you shut them down because you don't like Black Lives Matter. Like that's a good case. Right. But if you're suing about Manel, it can't just be one time. It has to be this kind of general policy they have. And, you know, I would not be surprised at all if there was a policy that summer to shut down all the Black Lives Matter protests, whatever they're doing. And but because of Manel, they have to, you know, kind of craft it this way and maybe they guessed one way and they should have gone the other way who knows but that's kind of my um uh my my supposition for my, what might be going on here that, i think that sounds right anthony i think that that's that they they didn't they didn't sue any individual police officers they sued only the city and i i think uh you're absolutely right that the key i, I think to understanding why in my opinion that, that the dismissal here was was correct is is looking at precisely what the Monell policy or practice was that they're alleging was it was unlawful or was unconstitutional. Yep. And as I said, the unlawful policy or practice here that they allege is that they're order they're saying that people are unlawfully assembled and they're ordering them to disperse under threat of arrest, even though these Missouri criminal statutes haven't been triggered. And and so it's just that's to me is enough. Yeah, a federal court, especially a federal appellate court that has jurisdiction over multiple states, is just simply not going to say that the police power, a, a city's police power, is completely circumscribed by state statute. In the sense, like unless if you know that unless you're violating a state statute, you're automatically acting unconstitutionally. You know, and that just does not seem something like a federal court's going to do, especially the Eighth Circuit. Yes, uh, we uh, will have more to say on the Eighth Circuit in future weeks, but I think we'll we'll leave it there for now. It's a, of course my home circuit. Uh, speaking here from Minnesota, um, well, I would like to thank very much our guests for assembling in a very lawful way uh, with me today and expressing their um, First Amendment rights. Um, I'd like to thank all of you for exercising your First Amendment rights and listening to Short Circuit. We'll see you again in future weeks and maybe see some of you on March 31st, as I said, when we're talking about Meyer versus Nebraska. But in the meantime, I hope that all of you get engaged. Mm -hmm.